Good evening. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're here. And uh, whatever you're thinking about it, John chapter 4, I'm just kidding, of course. John chapter 4, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And we come to uh, an account from the life of ministry where there are two really great things, uh, great in the sense of awesome kind of things that are happening uh, here in this scene, a familiar passage for many of us. But the truths are timeless as we see Jesus speaking to a woman, bringing the gospel to her, and then uh, she is not uh, uh, the sole uh, focus of the passage. Uh, she may not even be the supreme focus of the passage. Uh, uh, the supreme focus may very well be His disciples, if we can even attempt to compare in that kind of way. In chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea in the south and he departed again to Galilee up in the north. But he needed to go through Samaria. And so he came to a city of Samaria which is called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Now to me, always, um, I, always I don't mind a, a joke or a funny story to begin a sermon if I'm ever attending someplace, whatever God wants to do. But to me, the best way and the best introduction for any kind of a passage and for really understanding it is to establish the context of what we find ourselves in the middle of. That's true of every passage in the Bible. It is especially true of this passage. And if we don't understand the context a little bit, then we're going to miss uh, 75% of what it is that is uh, happening here. We're told that Jesus has been ministering in the southern part of uh, Israel, down in uh, Judah, around the city of, of Jerusalem. His influence, his ministry is increasing, and uh, John the Baptizer is happy to have it so. He is decreasing as Jesus' influence is uh, increasing, and uh, Jesus not wanting to appear to be in competition in any way with John, uh, not that John would think it or the disciples would think it, but he didn't want to even give the, the distraction to the carnality of the religious leaders to think that uh, these two were in competition with one another. And so he begins to make his way now, intending upon to go to the north, to the Galilee. We're told in verse 4 here, uh, uh, but he needed to go through Samaria. At that time, the land of Israel was divided into three sections, very much the same way today. The northern section is known as the Galilee. The central section of the land is known as Samaria. And the southern section of the land is known as uh, Judea. And the easiest way to travel from the north to the south, or as Jesus is doing here, from the south to the north, would simply leave Jerusalem, make your way straight through the land of Samaria, and make your way to Nazareth or Cana or Capernaum, as he's uh, doing here uh, in, in the passage. And so, but it wasn't the only way that you could travel. You could also cross over onto the east side of the Jordan River, which is modern-day Jordan, and make your way up to the north or down to the south uh, that way as well. And as we'll see in a few moments, it, this was done all of the time. And so when Jesus travels through Samaria and it declares that he must go through Samaria, it is not a must that means there was no other way for him to go from the south to the north, but that there's a greater must that is in play here uh, in, in terms of what he's operating uh, uh, under, as we see in verse 4. The reason that's given for this decision is that uh, he needed to. He needed to go through Samaria as a part of some uh, great plan, as, and as Jesus will uh, declare in his own words in verse 34, 
uh, to do something uh, that the Father, God the Father, has called him to do there in, in Samaria. And of course, what he needed to do was to come into contact with a certain woman in a certain village in the Galilee, and a woman known as the Samaritan woman. Now to us, we think about Samaria and being here in the central California, it really means nothing to us. There is, uh, there's really nothing attached to the term except that it refers to a sec center section of the land of, uh, of Israel. But to the Jews in Jesus' day, the mere mention of Samaria would have produced a tremendous emotion in, inside of them at, at the mention of Samaria and the Samaritans. And the expression that they most uh, often would have felt would be one of hostility. The origin of the hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans began all the way back in 721 BC when the northern kingdom of Israel was defeated by the Assyrians. And when the Assyrians, that great world ruling empire of the past, when they conquered a land, their methodology was to deport the, pop the native population of the land and then send it to another part of their imp uh, empire, bring a foreign population then into this other part of the land. And by destabilizing the land in that way, they felt it allowed them to maintain control of the land and, and maintain peace in the land, no rebellions against their rule. Uh, in, in a better way. And so uh, what they did when, the, uh, when they moved out the children of Israel from the north, they resettled the land with foreigners from other countries and uh, as their method was, and these foreigners then came into Samaria, they intermarried with the Jews who were left in Israel and they produced a race of, of people uh, that uh, the exiled Jews did not consider to be pure Jews, Samaritans. And here you have these foreigners, and when, when the Jews came back to the land after their Babylonian captivity, they discovered that these Samaritans had no intention of returning to their, uh, their former land. They liked Israel. Who wouldn't? Uh, they liked being in the land, and they were settling in for, uh, for the long term. And so these foreigners had intermarried with the Jews and created this foreign race, an impure race in the Jewish mind. Uh, they took the worship of Jehovah. They mixed it with all of their idolatrous practices. And, uh, and the Jews, uh, it, it, worse yet, the Samaritans then claimed to have a relationship with Jacob of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob fame, one of the, the three great patriarchs uh, of, of the Jews because uh, the land that they were settled in was the, and their life as, as a result centered in was the piece of land that Jacob had given to his son uh, Joseph. And so the place of their worship for the Samaritans was in Mount Gerizim. It was not uh, Jerusalem. And because of this, the Jews hated these Samaritans. They hated them for what they were nationally. They hated them for what they were racially. They hated them for what they were spiritually. And they considered them to be nothing but these foreign, kind of Johnny-come-lately, idolatrous, spiritual and physical half-breeds who now possessed their land and had no intention uh, of leaving. And the Jews' hatred of the Samaritans was so great that when they traveled in Israel from the north to the south and from the south to the north, they would not walk through Samaria. They did not want even the dirt associated with the Samaritans on their feet or on their sandals. And so they would cross over the Jordan River. They would travel up on the, the east side of the Jordan River, again, modern-day Jordan, and they would do so even though a three-day trip now became a six-day trip. On principle, they didn't want anything to do uh, at all uh, with the Samaritans. And so, because you, the Jews hated the Samaritans, the Samaritans, as is usually the case with the persecuted people, they in turn hated the Jews. 
And by the time Jesus comes into Samaria, in this little old passage that we've got right in front of us here uh, this evening, by the time he comes into Samaria, all of this has been going on for some 700 years. And this intense hatred of the two groups for one another uh, has been going on at its most intense for a full 450 years. That's far longer than the United States of America has even existed. Now you're talking about entrenched prejudice, you're talking about intense uh, hatred of, of one another until one generation after another of both Jews and Samaritans, they entrench themselves more firmly in all of their national and racial and, uh, and religious prejudice and hatred of one another until they had no dealings with one another. They became two peoples uh, that were forced to live close to one another because they shared the, the same country. And, and, it, it, and that was the only thing that kept them remotely in contact with one another. And so Jesus and the disciples, they had doubtless started their journey early in the day, and we're told in verse 6 that it's now the sixth hour. And so as the Jews counted time, that would have been uh, noon. They come to a city of Samaria, verse 5, named Sychar. And then in verse 8, this beautiful picture of Jesus' humanity uh, on display, we're told that he was wearied. He was tired from the journey, and his days were quite full with what he was doing. And, uh, and so he sat by the well located outside of the city, and his disciples then went into the city to buy food for uh, all of them uh, to, to eat. And so uh, the West Bank, of course, is a very, very hot area during much uh, of the year, and so he sits there by that well, and as he sits there by that well, he is waiting for her. And he knows she is coming. And she won't surprise him. It's not like the well is at the edge of the city and she would come around some kind of an alleyway and buildings built upon one another. Uh, at Sychar, the well is a full half mile outside of the city. She would have, he would have watched her approach the well at noon uh, for that length of time. Well, she arrives there uh, at the well, and, uh, and, and as he's watching her approach, she know, he knows everything that's going to take place. She has no idea that her whole world in eternity is going to change in a moment. And it's really fast. I mean, she just wakes up, and it's just one more, really for her, awful day in Sychar. I mean, her life has just run into the ground. And has no idea what God has planned for her on that day. And life is very exciting with God. You never know what it is that He is going uh, to do. So there's several things the Holy Spirit wants us to know about this woman. Some of them will unfold as the passage unfolds. She's a Samaritan. Uh, she's also a woman, a woman in a culture that did not esteem uh, women that highly. Uh, she has been married five times in her life. That would have been absolutely scandalous. Uh, in, in the ancient world, and as if it couldn't get any worse for her, uh, it does, because now she has completely abandoned the institution of marriage, and now she's just living uh, with, uh, with a man, and, uh, and, and she no longer demands even a commitment from a man of marriage in order to uh, give him what should only be given in the context of marriage. And so in that culture. She is an immoral woman. She's a woman to be avoided. She is the kind of woman that parents would warn their children and especially their sons uh, against ever uh, be, uh, engaging and, uh, and their daughters of ever uh, becoming. And so she is, in the way the passage plays out, it's really so beautiful. She's the kind of woman who comes uh, and gets her water from the well at noon in the city uh, of Sychar. Now, in, in the heat of that day, and we know something about heat in the Central Valley, in the heat of, of that day, the women would come 
in the morning, it was still a little bit cool, and then come again in the evening in order to get the water. And she comes at noon, and she comes at noon for a good reason, because she's the kind of woman here, and, and in the light of, of her history, she does not want to show up at that well when there's a bunch of other women at that, uh, at that, uh, that well. She is as low on the social totem pole as any human being could get, and she is very, very uh, well aware uh, of it. And later when Jesus tells her to go call her husband and return, her response is, I have no uh, husband. And all she is, she makes no mention of the five husbands she's already uh, had at all, makes no mention of the fact that she's now living with a guy. And, and why no mention of those things? She's ashamed of them. When you're proud of something, you work it into a conversation. When you're ashamed of something, you work very hard to keep that source of shame uh, hidden. And it's a glimpse at her emotional and her mental state in terms of where her life has gone and, and where it has taken her. And yet, uh, wonder of wonders, uh, for all of that, God is seeking her. This is a, one of the great comforts for me and I know that you're exactly as I am. You have friends, you have family members, um, you have neighbors, you have co-workers, fellow students, that you so want to be saved. And, and I look at the situations, and some of these situations I would just, apart from God, I would just completely give up on them. Except I always figure that if God could save the Apostle Paul and save you, then he can save anybody. And if he could save me and get through to me, then he can get through to anybody. And he has his ways. And so I, I enjoy this peace that I would never otherwise know to realize that I am saved and I am a Christian today uh, because in the same work uh, that God did a considerable work in slowing me down and getting my attention and putting Jesus in front of me that I was not an exception in a planet of seven billion people, but this is what He is endeavoring to do in everybody's life all around the world. And to know that He's trying to do that and working on that in my loved ones as well is uh, very, very comforting to me. He's very good at what He does. And the links that He will go to in order to get our attention and bring us into to contact with the Gospel. Well, the conversation begins here as the woman of Samaria comes now to, in verse 7, to draw water there. And Jesus said to her, give me a uh, drink. And so if, this is not nearly as harsh as it sounds uh, in the English. In the English, it looks like it's more uh, uh, a Jewish condescension toward, um, toward Samaritans in a Samaritan woman. But nothing of the sort is happening there at all. The word give, it means give, but it carries the idea of grant or bestow. Jesus is basically saying, would you grant me a drink? Would you bestow me a, a drink here? She is not offended in any way. She has no sense that he has mistreated her uh, in, in any way and uh, only surprised. And what surprises her is that as a Jew... Jesus is refusing to honor all of the national and the racial and the religious prejudice uh, of the day. And, and she's surprised that here's this Jew uh, that doesn't seem to understand the ground rules of engaging with a Samaritan. Uh, when Jesus asks her for a drink of water, and it's deliberate, He gives her the upper hand. He makes Himself, though a Jew... He makes himself vulnerable to her rejection, to her denying him the drink. And he deliberately puts her in the driver's seat 
of the conversation. It is a wonderful example in sharing the gospel with, with other people. He doesn't corner her, put her in a headlock, say, I hope these disciples will come and I can have those zip straps on her and, and force her to, you know, uh, get her into some kind of a cell and force her to confess me as Lord. There's none of that. The conversation moves forward as she allows it to move forward. And she gives it, he gives her that, that kind of, of freedom. And he gives her that kind of respect in, in kind of the vulnerability of her, her situation. And in all of this, in just one sentence, give me a drink, uh, Jesus has torn down this 700-year wall of separation and he's built a bridge to her. He has definitely got her uh, attention here. And, uh, and as he continues the conversation, uh, we'll see that, uh, that, that she recognizes it. So he talks with her. The disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, uh, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? It'd be like having a stranger come into a subculture, whether it would be in a city or a neighborhood or whatever it might be within, within a country and say, uh, you're new around here. You don't seem to understand the ground rules here. And she's genuinely confused. How do you ask a drink from me, not only a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman? And then she encapsulates 700 years of history in a single sentence. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus responds to this, and he kind of ignores all of it in the sense that he just drives through that. He's not there to fix uh, the 700-year rift between the Samaritans and, and the Jews on some kind of a political or philosophical level. He has come to save this woman, and he stays on, on task. So he said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was, that is himself, who says to you, give me a drink, then you would have asked him in return and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you uh, get that living water? Now, we think of living water, we kind of spiritualize living water, and it's right to do that. But uh, to the Jewish person in, in the Old Testament, certainly under the law, living water was a quality of water. You had dead water. Dead water is pond water. Dead water is uh, water that has no inlet or no outlet. It is well water. Living water is a spring. Living water is uh, snow runoff. Living, living uh, water is a river, and it represents something that's alive, it's pure, and that's what Jesus is offering to her. A quality of, of, uh, of water, a quality of satisfaction that, that can't be found in anything else. And then she, um, uh, she's, uh, she knows men. And, uh, and so she looks at him and says, uh, for a guy that is going to supply me with living water, if I asked for it, uh, you haven't come with a pail. You haven't come with a rope. Uh, they, they estimate that the, the drop at the well in Sychar to reach water with either an animal skin or some kind of a pail or something, it was 70 feet. You didn't just reach down and get it. So she's very, very ill-equipped to get anyone even a regular drink of water, let alone uh, a drink of this, uh, this uh, living water that you have uh, promised. Are you greater than our father Jacob? In a word, yes. Uh, who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock. And so the idea is, you know, uh, uh, Jacob... For all of whoever and what he was, um, and in contrast to whatever you are, Jacob at least gave us a well. It's not living water, but it is sustained life in this land physically for 700 years. And, uh, and so to top what it is that he has done for us 
and for people for that length of time, you seem to be uh, pretty ill-equipped for uh, being able to do that. And so uh, this was the same well that Jacob and his family and his animals had uh, drank from hundreds of years earlier. And so had a couple of things going for it. it. It traced all the way back to Jacob and, and it supplied for the physical thirst of men and women for all of those years. And so the idea is, you know, uh, Jacob didn't make promises as big as the promise you're making to me right now, respectfully. And, um, uh, but it wasn't living water, but, but it was real. And it was more than just, just words. Now, Jesus isn't offended at all. He's not, his noise, nose isn't out of joint here at all. He certainly doesn't allow himself to get distracted. Well, if that's the way you're going to be, I was going to save you, and now I'm not. Enough about how we witness, that he's a little bit different. He stays right on message to the whole, whole thing. And then in verse 13, Jesus answered, and this is an answer. And he said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Physical water. It's a, physical water quenches a physical thirst, but we get thirsty again. And one of the things that Jesus is saying, what is true about water is true about every created thing in the world. You take of it, you taste of it, and you thirst again. It satisfies a quench. It satisfies a need for life, a desire for life, uh, a search for the meaning of life for a time. But you always thirst uh, again. And it is a witness to the fact that the created realm cannot satisfy the spiritual thirst in mankind. It cannot do it. Solomon and Ecclesiastes heaped up riches and education and women and degrees and everything that he could. And he came to the end of the book and he spoke of all of it and encapsulated and said, it's all vanity and vexation of spirit in terms of discovering the meaning of life in any created thing. And he said, here's the end of the story. Know God and obey His commandments. That's what he learned. And he, he learned it for all of us. And Jesus said, so whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become uh, in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So now you have a spiritual water so you have a spiritual water that not only satisfies our spiritual thirst in this life, but it satisfies our spiritual thirst uh, for eternity. He's talking about uh, what comes into our life by virtue of a spiritual birth. So the, lay, uh, the woman, uh, she's tracking, it's, it's cute, it's about what I would probably do in this conversation. She said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst uh, nor come here to draw. I'd love to not come here at noon every day uh, watching out to see that all the women have gone and I've got there after they've gone and then before they come and the half mile and, and all of this. So give me this water that will eliminate that, that chore in my life. So she's thinking about this living water, what Jesus is offering, she's thinking of it solely in the physical uh, context because that's all she can uh, understand at, at, at the moment. And so she says, I'm, I'm all in and I want this spiritual water. I want this water that will bring a satisfaction to my life that will never end, it will never fail me because I haven't found it yet and she obviously sought to find that satisfaction to quench that spiritual thirst through men and she's run through five husbands and now she's living with a guy so she is it, 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 this is the sad this is the satisfaction that Jesus is trying to bring into her life I don't know about you, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to, uh, if you go out to dinner or your, your house or whatever, out to dinner with somebody else at their house, and somebody says, can I give you a little more of this or that? You say, no, I'm satisfied. Satisfied is a wonderful feeling. 
And, and to be physically satisfied is fabulous. To be spiritually satisfied is off the graph. I don't know about you, but when I became a Christian, satisfied. Uh, the search, to, the, the, search the, uh, the continued search for the meaning of life, that was over. So I would learn about other religions and I would learn about, you know, human philosophy and all of this stuff and all these other things that are uh, in, intended to be brought forth to, to try and satisfy us, but don't. But there was never like, okay, now I've become a Christian, now I'm in relationship with this God, but I'm still not satisfied because he satisfies the spiritual thirst within our life. And then she says, uh, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Ooh, boy, that's a quick little 90 out of the conversation that was going on. And then as if it couldn't get worse, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. So she's hiding a lot here. She does not want him to know the full situation. And Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. Now this is a scene that can appear cruel on Jesus' part, on the surface, but it's actually very, very beautiful. This woman knows how to hide her past. She's like all of us. She knows how to put her best foot forward and the admission of the things we regret about our past can only kind of be pried out of our life. And the reason this is a work of grace of Jesus in her life and a grace of love, she's going to end up saved. But he does not want her to leave that well and head to Sychar, having received the living water, now being saved, and then for it to enter into her, into her mind if he knew everything about me, then he wouldn't have saved me. So Jesus comes along and he says, I'm going to bring out the very worst of what you are ashamed of and is most looked down upon in the culture, and I'm going to let you know I know all about that, and I still want to save you, and you can still be saved. And that's a wonderful thing to realize when we become Christians, is to realize that when He saved us, I mean, we confess our sin and our need for Christ and all, but um, to realize He knew everything. Everything. Every second of everything. And still wanted to save us. And still went through the effort that He went through, like with this woman, in order to save us. So that when we did become saved, we would, we would know and realize, as this passage teaches us, and maybe it's intended to reinforce, reinforce something in our life, even here today, to know that He didn't save you knowing 90% of the truth or 70% of the truth, but knowing all of it. That's the kind of Savior that, that He is. And so He frees her of any kind of the devil or her own self-doubt coming and saying, yeah, he saved me on the basis of what I let him know about me. But if he knew everything, he wouldn't have anything to do with me. And the woman said at this word of knowledge, this, this prophecy that she, Jesus speaks to her, a word of knowledge actually, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And uh, so she's, she's coming up in her uh, elevation of her understanding of him. And then she poses a theological question to him. Our fathers worship on this mountain, and the Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now some people look at this and, and they think that she's just trying to change uh, the subject here by bringing up a religious something to, to uh, turn the attention uh, away from her sinful past and, and the things that we, he, uh, uh, she was ashamed of. But I don't, again, I don't, I don't want my first reaction to be the very worst motivation related uh, to her. She has a prophet 
That's, I mean, she, she doesn't recognize him as the Son of God yet, or the Messiah, but a prophet. And she's somebody who's given some thought to these things in her life. And she brings up this subject. You know, the Jews say Jerusalem is the place where we worship. The Samaritans say Mount Gerizim. I, I want to please God in, in, in all of this. What is your answer to this question? So she takes full uh, advantage of, uh, of, uh, of her access here uh, to, uh, to Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. We, that is the Jews, know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. So Jesus comes in and he lets her know. Want to know about Jerusalem? Mount Gerizim is the place to worship. It's Jerusalem. On that front, the Jews have it, uh, have it right. So not all, all cultures are equal. Not all religions are equal. He said in this regard, the Jews have it right and, uh, and uh, uh, you have it uh, wrong. And so he makes it very, very clear uh, to her. And then uh, he tells her now, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And because He is, those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in uh, truth. And so uh, she, she thinks the great um, concern, the great question is where to worship God. And Jesus turns and says, it's not where anymore with Him. Because now the temple is going to be as close as uh, the temple of the Holy Spirit is going to be the body of Christ, Christians. It's going to be as close to anyone as the nearest Christian is. And so it's not going to be about worshiping God at a certain place. It's going to, the emphasis is to worship Him in a certain way. That's what's important. And Jesus says God must be worshipped in spirit. That is, in reality, uh, He needs to be worshipped, He wants, desires to be worshipped with enthusiasm, with all of our hearts, all of our emotions uh, engaged. And in speaking this, He was uh, speaking uh, about the fact that uh, here rebuking the worship of God and what it had become under the Jewish people, the Jewish religious leaders of his day, it was just this dead, heartless religious activity. And Jesus says, that's not pleasing God in any way. He said, God must be worshipped not only in spirit, but in truth. Our worship of him needs to be based upon the Bible. It needs to be based upon our understanding of him and what he is really, really like, and to praise him for who uh, and, and what he uh, is, and based upon that revelation of God that's found in the Bible. And in here, Jesus is rebuking the worship of the Samaritans. They had just made up a whole bunch of things about God, a little bit of paganism over here, and a little bit of man-made ideas about God over here, and then God was supposed to accept this from them in worship. And God uh, doesn't have to accept it, and He didn't uh, accept it. And so maybe the Samaritans, they worship God with great emotion, with great heart, but it was wrong, and that can't bless God uh, either. So God is seeking worship from us as Christians who are biblical in our understanding of God, biblical in our doctrine, what we believe, and, and, and biblical in our practice, in the, in the life that, that we live. And then uh, also uh, our hearts being fully engaged with Him. Uh, all of what we're saying to God in worship is real, it's alive, it's true, it's a part of our relationship uh, with Him. Now, when He speaks to her about these things, uh, it, her mind turns to the Messiah. So it's not like she doesn't have a spiritual bone in her body. She does. 
And she wants this conversation to continue. And she said to Jesus, I know that, the, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when He comes, He'll tell us all things. He's going to straight, uh, straighten all of these things uh, out when He comes. And then this prompted uh, Jesus to say to her, I, uh, I who speak to you am He. I am the Messiah. Not just a prophet, not Jacob, as wonderful as he uh, is to you in, in your thinking. You are talking to the Messiah. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said uh, to her, what do you seek? Or to Jesus, what are you, uh, why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, she went her way into the city, and she said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And then they went out of the city and they came to him. The beautiful thing about the Samaritan woman, when we think about her now, and this is what Christ does in our life, we think about her as the woman who not only got saved, but then she takes the message related to Jesus back into Sychar and then tells the city, about him and the city comes out the city's going to be saved and so this becomes her legacy no matter what we have been before we became Christians once we come to know Christ God is willing to work in our lives and through our lives in such a way that what we become after we know Him comes to dwarf what we once were before. He gives us an entirely different legacy. And that's what He does for her uh, here. So she comes in, lets them know about the experience that, that she has had. Come and see a guy that told me everything uh, uh, about me that... Uh, could not otherwise know unless he was the Messiah, and they made their way out to, to seek Jesus for, uh, himself, uh, for themselves. Now, what is very interesting in the passage is Jesus never got his drink of water. But uh, he's not troubled in any way by all of this. As we'll see when he talks to the disciples. Then the entire passage then uh, in, in the next part of it shifts to uh, away from the woman and it shifts to uh, the disciples. In verse 31, uh, the, in the meantime, his disciples urged him. They brought food from the city. Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food of which you do not know. And therefore the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought you anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do uh, you not say, there are still four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, and that both he and who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this, in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I have sent you to reap that which you have not labored, and others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. So when they come back with the lunch, they are stunned at what is in front of their eyes, the disciples. Because their rabbi is talking with a Samaritan woman in Samaria. No rabbi who had any concern for his reputation of being taken seriously as a spiritual leader among the Jews would ever uh, talk, uh, 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 engage a Samaritan in this way, much less to talk to a Samaritan woman. Now, there's nothing improper uh, about it at all, what's going on, but it, 
it violated these, one of the man-made rules that the Pharisees had put together and the religious leaders, the priests had put together, the rabbis had put together about how a rabbi ought to conduct himself. And Jesus never uh, had any qualms about violating their traditions or their wrong-headed uh, uh, understanding of things. And so they are so shocked that there are two questions they immediately want to ask the Samaritan woman and Jesus as soon as they come upon, uh, they come upon uh, them. To the woman, uh, they wanted to say, what do you seek? And the idea is, shoo, go away. What are you doing here? You know that you're not supposed to be doing this. That's the attitude, the condescending attitude. And then of Jesus, they wanted to ask, why are you talking uh, with her? They wanted to rebuke him for doing this. You're never going to be taken seriously in Jerusalem if you conduct yourself in this, this kind of a way. You've got to stop it. And so here you see this in the disciples, the power, the power of prejudice even among God's, uh, among God's people, even among His disciples. It never enters into their mind that they could be wrong and how they viewed that scene and that Jesus could be right. They are completely fashioned by the culture, by the religion, by the history in their views towards Samaritans and the, the view of how Jews ought to conduct themselves among the Samaritans, which is to have nothing to do with them. Now, what Jesus taught the disciples in all of this, and what He taught them was very important. He taught them that both He and God the Father, they love everyone, and they want everyone to be saved, including Samaritans. And we think, come on, who doesn't understand that? I mean, is this remedial Christianity that we're looking at here? But for them, this was mind-breaking. The idea that God and Messiah would love the Gentiles uh, on top of loving the Jews broke their mind enough that God and the Messiah would have a concern for the Samaritans it just split their brains in two. This, this was a shocking thing that, uh, that they were seeing here, that Jesus loves Samaritans, and of course Jesus is making the point that they can't and we can't be anything like Him uh, unless we have a concern and a love for them as well. And so the importance of putting God's purposes, as Jesus spoke there in verse 34, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. To put that above all prejudices that have been built into our lives toward other people based upon either the culture or our own flesh or the history of our nation or whatever it might be. That the will of God for my life and His use of me for the population that surrounds me on this earth that will has to be more important than all of these other things, even when these other things have had a 700-year uh, 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 life. And, and uh, uh, God uh, wants to bring and, and, and is willing to save uh, every single human being in the world, whatever their background, whatever their race, whatever their nationality, their sex, their uh, religion. And so not to allow personal prejudice to cause us to write off vast portions of the world that God is trying to reach. And to write them off is mere uh, Samaritans. I, I'm inclined to believe that when Jesus told them to lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are white for harvest, that He was speaking about a sea of uh, white turbaned men that were coming from Sychar uh, coming toward the well in order to encounter uh, Jesus. And it's as if Jesus is saying, the whole world is filled with people like this. It's filled with Samaritans. 
It's filled with men and women who are ashamed of their past, who were born in the middle of 700 years of only God knows uh, uh, what. They're spiritually thirsty people. They're thirsting for what you know about God and how to know God. And so lift up your eyes. Look around you. The harvest is ripe. And the single great threat to that harvest is the prejudice toward other people the respect of persons, the hatred that can develop in our lives, whether nurtured by nationality, nurtured by family, nurtured by whatever it might be, that that prejudice towards other keeps us from uh, entering in uh, to the fullness of that harvest field and then bringing the gospel uh, to these people. And so to them, Samaria was a place... Uh, to avoid if it if it wasn't possible to avoid it then you was a place that you hurried through and uh, Jesus saw it as a place that was filled with people that were waiting to hear the gospel and to come and and to know uh, him if someone who is knowledgeable in spiritual things would get over their prejudices and simply take that news to them. And it's so important that we don't fall for it. One of the reasons I like this passage so much is because it speaks to me every single time I read it. I mean, you live in the same country that I live in. Do we have anybody from Belgium or anything out of, out of the country? It's all right, we're all in the same country. And you look at how hard our nation is working to divide the people of this nation. We were already the most hyphenated nation in the world. But what held all of that diversity together was a biblical foundation and a biblical morality and then the kind of country that was birthed from that kind of love for God and that kind of esteem for God. And what we have going on all around us is two things happening at once. Not only the removal of the one thing that can unite the kind of diversity that makes up the United States of America, and that is God Himself, but then to actively having removed that unifying influence where people look beyond their own uniqueness to see mankind the way that God does and now to pit people against one another based upon race, based upon poor, based upon uh, rich, based upon uh, politics, of course, today, based upon religion. And it is so important that we don't fall for it. And the same thing with the whole uh, sexual uh, trip that's going on today with it, uh, heterosexuals and then uh, and, and heterosexual sin, homosexual sin. Now we've got the whole trans confusion that, that's uh, going on. And here are these harvest fields that are before us when we're being uh, indoctrinated to hate these groups. But who is going to take the gospel to these people? The Mormons? Uh, the Hindus? Now, it's going to take Christians who have their heads screwed on straight, and I'm exhorting myself, by the way, have our heads screwed on straight and have the love of God and are not threatened to enter into these environments and who will, like Jesus, stay on subject and address the spiritual thirst and need in mankind and to take that message uh, to them. So we look in the privacy of our own heart here today, and uh, this evening, and to just ask ourselves, I mean, it, it, God knows everything, but are there vast segments of people in the United States of America that we don't want anything to do with? whether for their politics, for their race, for their whatever it might be. Don't want anything to do with them. 
and, and let alone giving any thought to sharing the gospel with any of them. And that's where the disciples were. And that's what Jesus is warning us that we have to be careful of. We can write off all Muslims. We can write off all Chinese as if everybody in China is a zealot uh, communist uh, uh, party member in, this, in the same and follower of Xi as every American is of our president. As if things are that simple anywhere in the world. But we just cluster group these people and then put them over here to view them a certain way very far from how God wants us to view them and how He would, uh, would handle them. The fields are white unto harvest. Jesus is teaching the disciples and us. But it is our prejudices so often, our respective persons that keep us from engaging in the fullness uh, of that harvest. And then in verse 39, we're told that many of the Samaritans uh, of uh, that city, they believed in Jesus because of the word that the woman, uh, 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 the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans had come to him, he urged, uh, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. He had never been given... A, a, an urging or an invitation to stay with a religious Jew his entire ministry. And here are these Samaritans that everybody's supposed to hate, and they open up their village to him. They open up their home to him. And, and what's even more significant is that Jesus stays two more days because he wants his disciples to camp there. And there's something about becoming familiar with what the people you hate are actually like that causes those prejudices in respect of persons to come down. I wish I could be fluent in every culture of the world. No one has enough time in a single lifetime to do that. But what walls would fall down if we really understood them as opposed to how we are told that we ought to view them. And so Jesus keeps the disciples there to see it close at hand for two days. And many more believe because of His own Word. They believed in Him as the Messiah because of His teaching. Presumably He taught during those two days. And then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard Him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior uh, of the world. And so they build their, um, the, her testimony caused them to investigate Jesus, but it was their own investigation of Jesus that brought them to a faith in Him as the Christ and as the Savior of the world. Now, after the two days, he departed from there, and he went then to uh, Galilee. He made his way to the north as he had intended, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had uh, gone to the feast. And so we will stop there. Um, tonight and we'll look to finish the chapter and move into chapter 5 next time. It's such an important um, passage and it is important the damage that is being done today in the pitting and the educating of people uh, non-religious against religious and political parties and all of these different kind of things. It is just awful. And it's so easy. I, I speak from the wickedness of my own heart. It is so easy to fall for it and not even to know what is uh, happening. And so this portrait of Jesus' love for the individual, what it teaches us about His love for human beings and the salvation of this woman, but then the important lesson that it teaches us in a world and especially in a country that is very, very divided. 
if we get sucked into it, there is no hope. There is no hope. If God Almighty living inside of us, if we can't see through that and move beyond that, the world never will do that. And, uh, and so the importance of having this brought to our attention. The Lord brings it to my attention regularly when I'm prompted to look at uh, entire groups of people based upon one or two examples from that particular group. And this always does a good work in me, a needed work in me, and I think it does in all of us. Let's stand together and let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your love for our souls. We see just the great, Jesus, the great effort that you went to, your patience, um, all you knew about her, your love for her, all of it so on display. We wonder what our testimony would look like if it were written out in this way. How early you approached us in life, how you never gave up, how you kept on speaking, ignoring our questions that deserve to be uh, ignored, answering the ones that would bring us closer to you. And we marvel at your love for us, at your uh, saving of our souls, and the privilege of being able to know a Savior like you. We pray for the warning and the instruction that the disciples 2,000 years ago, they loved you, God, and yet this major, major flaw in their life. And we thank you for bringing that out into the open so that we could see it to whatever degree it might exist in our own hearts and that we might see how far all of that is from our Savior and how ineffectual it makes us for the gospel in this world that you are preparing so many people in the desperation of their condition for the message that we have. Help us not to become mutes related to the gospel based upon these kind of things. And we pray and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.